it is a real, real pleasure uh, to see so many of you again, uh, some of you that uh, haven't been coming inside that are here. We are so pleased to be able to gather together with you in this way again. Uh, what a beautiful day, isn't it? How fortunate we are uh, to be out here. If this is your first time here with us at Calvary, uh, we are um, grateful to have you. We pray that the Lord will really minister to your heart, speak to you. Uh, where your heart needs to be spoken to. That's our purpose here, to gather and to consider his word. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be picking up today at the end of Acts chapter 7. While you're uh, kind of looking toward me, you'll notice kind of at the, the foot of the, this altar thing, whatever this is, uh, pulpit thing, uh, there's baby bottles up here. I don't know if that got announced, but this, that's for choice one. Uh, again, we are in the process of, uh, from Mother's Day to Father's Day, take a baby bottle, fill it up with change, bring it back by Father's Day, and that goes to support the Crisis Pregnancy Center Choice One. So you'll take notice of that. You might be interested in that. Uh, but as I said, we are in uh, Acts chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 54, where we left off last time we were together inside. Let's pray together. Father, we're blessed by this beautiful day. It didn't have to be a beautiful day today, but Lord, you blessed it, and we're grateful. Lord, we're blessed to see some old friends, some faces uh, that we haven't seen in a bit. We're blessed to be able to gather and sit under your word. We're blessed to have your Holy Spirit, those of us that believe. And the way that you use your word to minister to the deep places of our hearts we pray that you would do that once more. Father, we pray for those that are with us that don't yet know Christ. Lord, that even in the, in the process of gathering together and observing what it is you're doing amongst your children, that they would be drawn to you this morning. Teach us through your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to pick up, and we left off the last time we were together in sort of, with sort of this cliffhanger. It would have been a great TV program to come to the end of that program and you're, you're glancing at the clock and you're thinking they're not going to finish this in time. I got to come back next week to watch this. Uh, it would have been a great place for us uh, to have that sort of a setting here. But, and I'll remind you, in case you weren't with us or if you've forgotten, it's a long week, Stephen, this man that was selected to be a deacon in the church, a servant in the church, the first group of, of them was in a contentious conversation with the religious leaders of the, the nation of Israel, particularly there in Jerusalem. We see the council, the Sanhedrin, those 70 religious leaders that were essentially the Supreme Court of the day, the ultimate authority of the, the Jewish people of the day. And Stephen is out there, he's witnessing, he's ministering, he's speaking, he's talking, he had done some miracles. People were inquiring, you know, where'd this come from? Where's his power come from? Who are you? What are you all about? Stephen's talking with them. And then we saw in our last study that members of the various synagogues scattered around Jerusalem, they began to have problems with that, questions about that. They accused Stephen of blasphemy against the temple and blasphemy against Moses and the law and, and ultimately against Judaism and all those things. And so they had a problem with that, and they were really going at it with Stephen. Finally, the high priest comes in, makes probably the biggest mistake of his life, and he says, what's this all about? 
do you have something you want to share with us? And Stephen says, I'm so glad you asked. And Stephen went at it a long time, longest recorded speech, sermon, that we have in the book of Acts, and certainly rivals any in the whole Bible. And he is going and going and going and going, and he's using example after example after example from the scriptures to disprove these religious leaders, to really challenge them where they are at in their thinking. You think that this temple, you think this holy land is the only place that God can work? Well, God worked with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He worked with Joseph in Egypt. He worked with Moses on Mount Sinai. The temple isn't the only place where God can work and God can minister. Stephen says to these highly trained religious leaders, your thinking is wrong on these areas, in these issue, on these issues, in these areas. He then goes on and he talks about some of the other things. And he really just sort of establishes where he is coming from and why their thinking is off the mark. He comes to the second of his key points, which was this, that the history of the Jewish people has regularly been missing those whom God has sent to minister to their needs. And so whether we're talking about Joseph being the one that God was going to raise up in the book of Genesis, raise up to be the deliverer of his people, even though at the time he was the youngest in his entire family, they rejected him. As you know, they threw him into a pit. They were going to kill him. They realized they could make some money off of him, so they sold him into slavery. They rejected the one that God had raised up. Moses, he came upon his people. He was going to lead them out of slavery. The people rejected him. Moses had to run for his life to the backside of the desert, the scripture says. He comes back 40 years later because the one that they had rejected, God had vindicated. Joseph, the one they had rejected, God had vindicated. And before long, his brothers are bowing before him, not in worship or anything like that, but in submission to him, not knowing that it is him. Those that they rejected, God had vindicated. Stephen brings that entire message to a close with these words. It's in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. If you have it, look there. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he goes through this long, lengthy speech, and his conclusion is not to say those people of old were stiff-necked and hard-hearted. His conclusion is to say you the people I'm talking to, not you guys, but the people he was talking to, you are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. He says, which of the prophets did your, parent, did your uh, fathers not reject? And then notice he says, and those whom the prophets spoke of, it says there, the righteous one, you have now killed. And of course, that's referring to the Messiah. And of course, Stephen is specifically referring to Jesus Christ. He said, you have now betrayed him, crucified him, and killed him. Now, if Stephen, if his goal, if his purpose 
was to get out of trouble by this speech. He was in trouble. People were upset with him. Key leaders were upset with him. If he was hoping to say some nice words and people were like, all right, you're a good guy, this was not the way to go about it. Again, he concludes by saying, you stiff-necked people, you heart of heart people, you killed God's Messiah. Which brings us now to where we're going to pick up this morning. Look at verse 54. He says, now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears and they rushed together at Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Look also at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Now Luke begins here by telling us that the response of his audience, Stephen's audience, was that they were enraged. Some of your versions may say something to the effect of they were cut to the heart. Stephen's message had impacted them where it matters. It had impacted them in the heart. And as we see, as you saw, they weren't happy about that. They had the opportunity now to weigh Stephen's words to say, you know what, this guy's right. We're wrong. We, we're off the mark. Or to reject him even further. And that's exactly what they will go on to do. We saw a little bit earlier on in our study, this is from chapter 6, verse 10, so it was about two weeks ago. They said this, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen was speaking. That's when he was interacting and engaging with the synagogue leaders. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen was speaking. They know that Stephen is right. And again, they can either change their minds or dig in their heels. And they decide to dig in their heels. As we see, Luke tells us they were enraged. Luke tells us that they began to ground their teeth. We might say that another way, and you can think of a, a dog that's growling at something that is angering it. These high religious leaders, the highest of society essentially, are growling at Stephen and the words that he has to say and the message that he has to share. Again, they were cut to the heart. They were pricked in their consciences, but they would not repent. They would not acknowledge the truth of what was being said. And so this highly educated group of people instead, they begin to clinch their fist, they begin to clinch their jaw, they begin to growl at Stephen. And I imagine throw all kinds of words around at Stephen as well. Stephen, however, look at verse 55. So, excuse me, six. Picture them. Clenched fist, jaws clenched, 
growling coming out of them, maybe yelling at him. Stephen, verse 55, remains calm. He remains at peace. He remains unmoved by their hatred and by their vitriol. 55 says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They're losing their minds. It says that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. I like the way that J.B. Phillips, that's a translation of the Bible. It's called the Phillips translation. It's sort of a, uh, an expanded translation to really kind of give you the sense of the original meaning. Phillips says this in regard to where we read in our versions, Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit. Philip says, Stephen filled through all of his being with the Holy Spirit. With all of his being, Stephen was submitted to God and to the leading of God in his life. Now, what's interesting for me to take note of is this. That's the exact condition that Stephen was in when this whole scenario started. Back in chapter 6, we saw this. Chapter 6, verse 3. It tells us that he was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. And because he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was qualified to serve in the church. Chapter 6, verse 8, you can look over there. It told us that he was full of grace and power and doing signs and wonders among the people. And then in chapter 6, verse 10, as we read a few moments ago, it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And so the same condition that he was in before the conflict is the condition that he is in at the end of the conflict. Despite the heated opposition that had come against him, those volatile circumstances didn't alter him. That's really helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you as well to consider that because what I find in my life is I let less difficult circumstances alter me and bother me. Stephen here is essentially on trial for his life. And he's being mistreated by 70 or more people that are yelling at him, growling at him, clenching their fists and their jaws at him. And Stephen is unaltered. Again, I allow less difficult circumstances to rob me of the joy of the Holy Spirit. Things are humming along. I have a wonderful quiet time in the morning. I'm in a really good place. The birds are singing. And then I get out to my car and I have a flat. And I'm thinking, really? And a little bit of that Holy Spirit sort of leaks out. What we learned from Stephen here is a flat tire does not need to be a time for us to lose the filling of God's Holy Spirit. Similarly, we have a great time of fellowship. We come out on a Sunday morning. We're hearing the voices of others that are singing, we're interacting with people, the word is going forth, we're sitting under it as the Holy Spirit is blessing us. We leave this place, we're ready to go. Lord, whatever has to come against me, let it come against me. And you come walking up on your car where your kids are already in the car, and people are yelling and poking one another and screaming, and just like that, it feels like it fades away. What we learn from Stephen in this very difficult circumstance, is circumstances like that don't need to rob us of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power and the joy that comes when we are in a right place with him. 
Stephen's getting screamed at, growled at, a bunch of angry, hard-hearted, stubborn religious leaders, and he doesn't allow it to impact him at all. May each of us be a little more like Stephen. Now, Stephen is in such a place of fellowship. Notice verse 55 goes on to say that he gazes into heaven. He sort of looks up into the skies, gazes into heaven, and it says he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's in such a place of fellowship with the Lord that the Lord gives him a vision of the heavenlies and what is going on in the heavenlies. What a stark contrast to the behavior of those religious leaders. Now, Stephen's response to the vision, it seems to indicate this is unusual to him. So Stephen's not the kind of guy that's regularly having visions of heaven because notice what he says in verse 56. He says to those, just really out loud, and perhaps to those that he's addressing, he says, behold, that, that means stop everything and consider. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Behold, I see the heavens open. This is not a normal occurrence, even for a man like Stephen that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man. It's reminiscent for us, it reminds me, perhaps you as well, of when Jesus himself was baptized. And you recall at the baptism of Jesus that there was this voice from heaven that spoke and acknowledged the Son and the Father's good pleasure with him. I'll read it to you, Matthew 3. It says, Now when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Reminiscent. Stephen says, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right, or excuse me, standing at the right hand of God. Two points that I want to draw to your attention from that little phrase there in verse 56. Two points of note that I think are important. Number one, notice how Stephen refers to Jesus. He refers to him as the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a term, it's a messianic term. Jesus used it often of himself. It's one of the most common uh, terms that Jesus used to describe himself as he is speaking uh, to the various people groups that he came across in the Gospels. So it's very common in the Gospels. This, however, is the only time it is presented in the book of Acts. The Son of Man, as I said, is a messianic term. It refers to the Messiah. And it's used particularly to describe the humanity of God's Messiah. So you recall this, that God's Messiah, Christ, kind of the Messiah is like the Old Testament terminology. Christ would be the new because of Hebrew and Greek. But you recall that God's Messiah would be both a conquering king and a suffering servant. And so those passages of Scripture which tend to be talking about the conquering king aspect of the Messiah typically will use the phrase son of God. Those uh, sections of scripture that are speaking more of the suffering servant aspect of God's Messiah tend to use the phrase son of man. And so here is our friend Stephen, and he looks up into heaven, and the term 
that comes to his mind to aptly describe what it is that he is seeing as he sees Jesus stand there in heaven is to refer to him as the Son of Man. The term again, Son of Man, applies more to the humanity and the suffering on behalf of humanity of God's Messiah. You remember what Jesus said, Luke chapter 9. He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, here is Stephen, seeing Jesus, bearing the marks of his crucifixion for all of eternity. Stephen is seeing Jesus as the one who suffered at the hands of men, and specifically these men that are standing in front of him. These that demanded of Pilate, put him to death, or you're no friend of Pilate, or excuse me, of Caesar. Stephen sees Jesus as the one who suffered at the hands of men, but yet, where is Jesus now? Standing at the right hand of God. Remember his sermon earlier. Those that God raised up, you rejected, but God vindicated where is Jesus? Vindicated at the right hand of the Father. He says here that he is standing. That also is to note. And the reason why it is of note is because the more, more common description of Jesus that is found for us in the scriptures is not that Jesus is standing in heaven, but that Jesus is seated in heaven. Colossians chapter 3, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Matthew 26, Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies Shall be, named, shall be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus, when he ascended into the heavens, sat down in heaven because his work as high priest was once and for all completed. That's what the Hebrews passage is all about. And yet here, Stephen sees Jesus not seated, but standing. Is there significance to that? I think there is. Those two figures of speech that he's sitting in heaven and that he's standing in heaven, they remind us of the two aspects of the work of Christ on behalf of those that are his. And so when he offered himself once and for all, he provided for humanity a perfect redemption. That's complete. His redemption is fully satisfactory. And his sitting down speaks to the completeness of his redemptive work. If you have placed your trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins, you have been redeemed, the scripture says. And how do we know whether that price will fully pay? What if I sin some more a little further along? What if I sin so badly? Can God continue to forgive me or will God continue to forgive me? You can know for certain. Because when he paid that price, he sat down. The complete redemption of our souls. 
Now, his standing speaks to his partnering with Stephen and you and I in ministry. As Stephen is ministering before his audience there, even in that hostile circumstance, the Lord stood with Stephen, even in the opposition that he was experiencing. Stephen's service did not go unnoticed by the Lord. Rather, the Lord stood to fully engage in all that was taking place. I was thinking of an analogy of this, and the only one that came to mind to me was 2008 when the Phillies won the World Series. That's a long time ago. But I remember it came down to the last out. They did the same thing in the stadium that I did in my living room. I got up off my couch, I walked toward the television, and I watched closely to see what would occur. I took notice of these things. Jesus stood up and took notice of how Stephen was ministering to this audience that was before him. I think we can also think of it this way. Stephen was about to enter in to the place of heaven, and, St and the Lord stands to welcome him. The Lord stands to invite him in. I like the way that F.F. Bruce said this. Stephen had been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Jesus did say, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Stephen says, I see heaven opened. And the Son of Man vindicated, standing at the right hand of the Father. Now that expression was in the mind of these religious leaders, the last straw. They couldn't take any more of this. They, they lose their minds, literally here. Verse 57, well, I don't know if that's literal. Uh, figuratively, they lose their minds. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. For Stephen to suggest to these individuals that the crucified Jesus was now standing in a position of power and authority next to Jehovah God was nothing short of blasphemy in their thinking. The Jews, not only did they not believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but they also had this understanding that a crucified man was a cursed man. And here now is Stephen saying, no, he's not cursed. God vindicated him. And he gave him a position of authority, the right hand. Verse 57, they stopped their ears and they rushed together at Stephen. And as it says, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They, they would hear him no more. Their anger against him reaches such a level that they rush at him. That word that is used there that describes them rushing at them, it's the same word that's found in the Gospel of Mark to describe the pigs that were demon-possessed and ran off the cliff and destroyed themselves. Same word that is used there. So like an angry mob of demon-possessed swine, they rush at Stephen. They're filled with rage. 
and their rage brings them to the place where there's a complete lack of adherence to the laws of their society. They didn't have the authority, they didn't have the power to put someone to death in this particular way because they were under Roman rule. But even in addition to that, it was required of them, it was required of this council that if somebody was going to be executed and they were going to bring them to their Roman officials, that there had to be a cooling off period of time. A night essentially had to pass so that people could really think about what we are about to do. There was a process that they had to go through. If they believe that this is what needs to happen, there's a process that they would have to go through. But they are so mad, so angry, so filled with rage that again, it says they rush towards Stephen, drag him out of the city, out of the temple. They're an angry, out of control mob, and it says they stone Stephen. They stone him. When Jesus was killed, he was not killed according to the Jewish method, which wasn't really uh, exercised very frequently anyway under Roman rule. The Jewish method of execution was stoning. Jesus was crucified, which was the Roman method of execution. And so these fellows here, either they decide we're going to kill this guy and deal with the consequences later on, whatever the Romans want to say later on, or they believe that God is giving them sort of the authority to go ahead and buck the system and do what they're going to do. They believe that they're performing the will of God by killing Stephen. And if Stephen had met Jesus in, in person earlier and had, had sat earlier and listened to some of the things that Jesus had taught, he might have heard these words from John chapter 16. When Jesus, during the closing days of his earthly life, he said, yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. The Sanhedrin thought they were doing the service of God by putting to death this man, Stephen. Stephen was the first to experience this, as we're going to see in the book of Acts. And if you study church history, he was not the last and would not be the last to experience this. Luke continues, verse 58, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now that sounds a bit like, hey kid, watch my jacket. You know, and there's this young guy over there named Saul. It's actually a statement when it says they laid down their jackets or their garments at the feet of this guy Saul. It's actually a statement that indicates that Saul was not only a member of the Sanhedrin, but that Saul authorized what was going on here. They got permission, essentially, from this fella, Saul, to do what it was they were about to do. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, it states that distinctly. It says, and Saul approved or gave approval of their killing of him. Now, Saul will go on to be a major figure in the book of Acts. And we're going to come to him as we go a little bit further along here. But just right here, what we see, what we observe, is that Saul, a member of the Sanhedrin, officially grants permission to this mob of individuals to kill Stephen. 
And so with approval, approval of this member of the Sanhedrin, they drag Stephen out of the city. They, they drop him down into some kind of a pit, some kind of a lower area of sorts where they would have the advantage of being above him. And then they begin to pummel him with stones and with rocks. Until finally Stephen would succumb and he would die. What they would actually do is they would take a, a larger stone, not one you're going to throw, but more one you're going to cast, and they would come over top of him, and they would, that would be the first one to be slammed down upon him. And then soon everybody would join in and begin to throw stones as well. Verse 59, now as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen cries out, Lord, receive my spirit. Now, that indicates something about Stephen's theology. Stephen believes that when he takes his last breath here on earth, he's going to take the next breath, so to speak, in heaven. There's not going to be a delay here. As soon as he leaves the earth, he will immediately enter into the presence of God. He says, God, receive my spirit. You remember later on, one of the authors of the New Testament would write, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Stephen fully expected that to be the case. Remarkably, notice how Stephen continues. He said, Lord, receive my spirit. He continues to pray. Verse 60, falling on his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. So in anger and in rage, they're unjustly murdering him. And yet with peace, and mercy, he's praying prayers, asking God to forgive them. Once more, just the glaring contrast between Stephen and his accusers. Stephen's dying words as he's being pummeled with stones is, Lord, do not hold this against them. Again, displaying the same spirit that Jesus displayed. You remember when Jesus was being unjustly being put to death, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Stephen, like his Lord, is praying for the pardon of his executioners. Despite their violent opposition to him, Stephen continues to maintain nothing but love for them. How can that be? Well, it goes back with the spirit by whom Stephen was filled. Remember, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit would not stop loving these people, neither could Stephen. There's an important point to make note of before we move on. Even though Stephen was filled with love for these men that were violently and unjustly killing him, that does not mean that Stephen didn't speak truth to them on matters that they needed to hear. As, again, as we saw in our last study, Stephen vigorously opposed them with his words, but notice, even while he continued to love them with all of his heart. I bring it up because we are increasingly told in our society that if we disagree with a person or we disagree with the decisions or choices that they are making, that we, we must be a hater and that we must be silenced. The reality is this, truth need never be sacrificed 
on the altar of love. And Stephen is evidence that those two things are not mutually exclu exclusive. Stephen's heart was for his executioners, that they would be forgiven of all of their sins, including this major one that they are doing to him right now by unjustly killing him. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What love filled the heart of Stephen, even as he spoke uncomfortable truth to his listeners? Stephen will be the first Christian, Christian martyr in the history of the church. Now, a martyr is a person who dies for his or her beliefs. A Christian martyr is a person who was killed because of his or her witness to Jesus Christ. The word martyr, it's a Greek word. It simply means to be a witness or to bear testimony. And so Stephen doesn't become a martyr in the truest sense of the word because of how he died. He became a martyr because of how he lived. G. Campbell Morgan, he said it this way, the fires in the old days never made a martyr. They revealed them. I'd recommend for your reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. Excellent resource. It'll take you a long time to read and just read a chapter a week or something like that. And meditate on those. Consider those like you, regular people in the faith, that died for their faith. The fires in the old days never made martyrs. They revealed them. Brother and sister, you and I are called to be martyrs for the faith, even as Stephen was. Not because each of us will in all likelihood be killed for the faith. That likely is not going to happen, though one never knows. But we're called to be martyrs because each one of us are called to be witnesses of the faith. Stephen is not some kind of superman or some super Christian. He was a male, he was a man filled through all of his being with the Holy Spirit. And that is not a unique experience to some people. That's the experience every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ can have day in and day out. We might look at Stephen's life and see and think to ourselves, wow, what a tragedy that his life was cut short as it was. But I'll remind you of this. Our objective as Christians shouldn't be a long life as much as a full and meaningful life. Life then doesn't really boil down to the number of years we end up living. What it really boils down to is the manner in which we have lived those lives. Stephen allowed himself daily to be filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. You can do that. Stephen, no doubt, moment by moment, sought the Lord's will that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I, we can do that as well. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that God would use him. And God greatly blessed his submission to accomplish through him eternity-altering events, the most significant of which we'll look at next week when we come back together. Let's pray together. Father, we need to be more like a Stephen, every one of us here. 
Lord, we need to be so convinced of the truth and yet at the same time so filled with love that we would speak that truth, that we would minister the truth, we would do so in a way that loves others. Lord, that our testimony, our witness would be used by you to cut to the heart the deepest places of everyone's soul. Father, like Stephen, we pray that we would be used by you. And that when circumstances become difficult, it wouldn't alter us, Lord. But we would continue to have our eyes firmly fixed on you. Would you bless us as a church this week as we go from here? Lord, would we be so aware of your presence in each of our circumstances that we encounter? Would our hearts sort of swell so that we can contain even more of you than we did the week prior? And would you use us in the lives of others, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.